0: of an interesting when you think about what's going on with the situation in ukraine it's now been going on more than three months um and you know for a while it was something that we talked about each and every day uh, at length we don't do that as much anymore and i guess unfortunately that's just sort of the way the news cycle works right things come and things go and um at a time, as we were talking about this, there was all kinds of debate and discussion around NATO getting involved, how much should they get involved, can they get involved, and the threat always was. Well, that's World War Three and nuclear Armageddon. We can't do it. We can't risk it. That's something we never want to do. Um, And we don't talk about that as much as we did, and maybe we should be, according to our next guest. Mark Kingwell is a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, whose latest books are on Risk, the Ethics of Architecture, and the Adventurer's Glossary. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Shay. Good to be with you. Yeah, we're going to have a conversation here about, you know what, we don't talk about you know, the possible, I mean, however slim you want to say it is, that's fine. But the possibility of a uh, nuclear escalation with what's happening in Eastern Europe and and the point that, you know what, maybe we should, maybe we should think a little bit more about the, you know, the worst case scenario.
1: Yeah, I mean, the way you described it, I think, is is extremely apt. We have two blind spots right now uh, with respect to uh, Eastern Europe Uh The first is the most obvious one in some ways, the fact that the news cycle, as you say, and just people's attention spans have uh, flagged in this longest ground war uh, for decades. And uh, there's still news reporting, and uh, perhaps the worst is yet to come. This is going to be a grind if it Mm -hmm. stays in the current so-called conventional warfare uh, setting. But the other blind spot is, is the bigger one, to my mind, because... Uh, it's almost total occlusion with respect to the, the nuclear option. And though there was some talk of it yep. uh, early on because, of course, Russia does have a significant stockpile. It's the second largest stockpile of nuclear warheads in the world after the United States. Uh, we actually don't know how many China has. But um, anyway, Russia is a significant nuclear threat. And you have a, a, an unstable leader, I, I think that's fair to say, uh, whose expansionist policies... Uh, to the countries nearby, are fairly obvious, uh, and will he stop at nothing? Uh, that's the, the big question. And I think what's fascinating to me, as someone of a certain age, is that we had, we're not talking about that second issue really at all. Uh, there are a few people. Uh, my my article in the Globe last Saturday was also alongside one by the Nobel Prize winner John Pauliani, who's been a, a watcher of nuclear weapons proliferation for decades. And uh, I know John personally a little, and uh, he's been very concerned about this. Uh, and the so-called doomsday clock, which is kept by the Bulletin of, the, of Atomic Scientists, it now stands at 90 seconds to midnight, and midnight is doomsday. Uh, now, to, to be uh, completely accurate, that clock is measuring every kind of doomsday scenario, sure, yeah. not just nuclear. So there's, there, there are so many things to be worried about that it's not surprising that we find it hard to to keep in mind this kind of shadowy threat that's lying in bunkers and uh, nuclear submarines uh, under the ocean.
0: You know, in reading your piece on Saturday, uh, part, I thought to myself, well, what we're talking about here is scaremongering. But, you know, I don't say that in a bad way necessarily, Mark, because in, in some instances you can call it scaremongering if you want, or in other ways it's just sort of having a, a frank discussion about the risks that are present, and, you know, yeah. yeah, it's scary.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned my little book on risk, and one of the things I talk about in there is the difference between scaremongering, which I take to be uh, arousing anxiety and fear when there's no no uh, objective basis for it. So, scaring the children, in other words. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when there's an objective basis for it, it's 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 perfectly rational to be afraid <laughs> and risk-averse, and uh, we're not great at calculating risk, uh, we humans. That's, that's one of the most important points about risk that we, one should come back to. So when it recedes from view, it uh, becomes taken for granted. It's, it requires an effort of imagination to, to bring that threat back into consciousness. And this is, this is an interesting time because I, I was recalling in the piece being an undergraduate in the 1980s, and all we talked about was nuclear Ar- Armageddon. It, it seemed like it was going to happen next week, you know. Right. And uh, we would make plans for uh, where we would meet if the sirens went off, and I wrote about all of these films and novels that depicted post-apocalyptic landscapes. I mentioned The Day After, which was the most-watched television film of all time at that, that moment, uh, and there, there's a dozen or more, more others, as everyone knows now. Uh, so the, the, it's a very different set of mind now yeah. than it was, you know, four decades ago. And uh, but the, well, the warheads haven't gone away. They, they've shrunk some of the bunkers, but uh, there's still many thousands of nuclear warheads in uh, stockpiles in at least nine countries that we know of. Uh, so that that is,
0: to me, that is frightening in a rational sense. Absolutely, I agree with you. The question, though, is what's the benefit to let's call it worrying uh and like you say i mean i, I remember the 80s and and uh, it wasn't nearly as pointed as it was earlier in the 60s and things like that but i mean there were there were concerns around it at that time too and um what what what's the benefit that you see in um you know making sort of plans to where you'll meet if the sirens those kinds of things sort of playing out the scenario what's the benefit in that
1: well i i frankly though, i don't think there was much benefit in that that that, that kind of thinking was Desperate endgame thinking. Yeah. If if we take a longer view, there there are policy leaders. Uh, you know, President Obama, United States President Barack Obama, really made an effort. He made it a, a, a policy uh, priority to try and and reduce the number of warheads worldwide. Uh, and that that effort failed. He didn't um, manage to convince other nuclear powers to go to a zero nuclear situation. But uh, there was reduction, and uh, so at, at the highest levels, prompted by concern from citizens, which is how policy always has to work in, in at least democratic nations, uh, there are some tangible gains that can be made. Uh, so anxiety can actually translate into action. And uh, anxiety on its own can, can be paralyzing, of course, mm-hmm. and that's not helpful. Uh, or it can be despairing, likewise not helpful. But when it's activist, when it um, actually puts things back on the agenda, then you have some, some uh, force where the rubber meets the road.
0: This current situation that we find ourselves in in, in Eastern Europe right now, to, to most of the analysts I've spoken to, has brought us closer to the possibility of a a nuclear incident than anything that's happened in the last 50, 60 years. Um, What should we be thinking about? I mean, there are so many different factors. And like you say, as as the the longer this continues to sort of grind out in, in what it's become, do we get to a point where suddenly the grandiose maneuver seems more likely?
1: Well, yes, I do think so, given some of the specific circumstances. Uh, At least since 1945, any ground war, any conventional war, had the possibility, depending on who was involved, of doing the the kind of quantum leap to a nuclear conflict. And, you know, there was a lot of discourse generated about uh, localized nuclear attacks, uh, low-level bombings, not all-out assaults, to try and avoid the the mutually assured destruction, uh, end-of-the-world kind of scenario uh and luckily none of that really came into play but uh it it remains a, a, an existential threat to human life it's it if if it escalated to the point it's capable of escalating to we're talking about the end of the human race uh, the end of the, the earth the world as we know it we're not we're not just talking about you know many hundreds of thousands of casualties we're talking about the end of everything uh, and i think that's that's really you know i i mentioned the Bertrand Russell Albert Einstein Manifesto, which, which dates from um, the earlier period you mentioned, the 60s. And you have to think, when you're reading scared words from, from two of the smartest people who've lived in the 20th century, you should pay attention. And uh, they, they were very clear that this is not an ideological argument they're making. This is an existential argument about the future of humankind. So uh, the stakes could not possibly be higher. Uh, I think we get mired in in ideology, nationalism, and 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 of course the human factor. There's somebody, some group of people with their fingers on on all those buttons. Uh, that's the most terrifying thing.
0: Um. How did we get here? Because uh, we did a number of interviews, I'm going to say two months ago, two and a half months ago, maybe talking about this risk of a nuclear incident and, you know, how it could happen and why we need to take it seriously and why it needs to guide the way that NATO responds. And now it's kind of like, yeah, well, I mean, did we handle it properly and minimize the risk or did we just get bored and complacent with it?
1: That's a really good question. Uh, I think, in my view, what happened was, there there was indeed some serious consideration of of this possibility early on in the the Ukraine invasion. And given what we knew about Putin and what we quickly learned about him, uh, I think what's different now is that, uh, well, several things. One is this war has ground on longer than Putin wanted it to. And it's partly because uh, there were all kinds of strategic and tactical errors uh, that, that the Russian forces made. I think they thought it was going to be a cakewalk to take chunks of, of Eastern Ukraine away from the Ukrainians. They didn't anticipate the kind of street to street, even hand to hand fighting that we've witnessed, um, really gory kind of, um, I don't, I, you know, the, the worst kind of warfare. So this is ground on longer than Putin wanted. And I think he, he's committed now. You know, there's all this talk about how to give him a soft landing, a way out. And you can have your views about that. Some people think that's capitulation. Others think it just you know, uh, is the only option. Yeah. I don't myself know. I mean, I, I just, how can you see into the mind of someone who's not completely rational? Uh, but it seems to me that the nuclear threat is actually more pointed now than it was a few months ago because of the, the, the twinning of we're not talking about it so much, and it might even be more proximate than ever because of the failure of, of the Russians right. to roll over the Ukrainians, which, by the way, I applaud. Um, some of the stories we've told about the bravery of people defending their own homes and towns is, uh, are, are quite amazing.
0: Yeah, no question. Absolutely they are. Um, great conversation, Mark. I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, very interesting. That's Mark Kingwell, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, whose latest books are On Risk, The Ethics of Architecture and the Adventurer's Glossary. It's an interesting point in terms of, okay, um, it's all we talked about for a while, right? And we had fierce debates here on the air as to whether or not NATO should step in and, you know, get involved, establish a no-fly zone. Remember that big discussion about the no-fly zone and Ukraine calling for a, a, a no-fly zone, Ukraine saying we needed this, we needed to have NATO troops and NATO saying, Biden and the rest saying, you know, we can't, we just can't, because if we do, that means World War Three. that means Armageddon, we can't do it, we just can't go there. Um, And then we talked about that for quite some time. And now we don't hear that as much. I know there was some more saber rattling from Putin on the weekend about possibly, you know, raising the stakes of uh, a a nuclear conflict. um, But it's just not the same discussion point.